right. Good morning again, by the way. My name is Rich, for those of you who don't know. If you're new here, welcome. Um, Pastor Brandon's out. He's uh, got a calling to uh, be able to, to preach at a, at a friend's church and wanted to take that. So he called on a lay leader, me, and I get to uh, bring God's word. Not only do I get to bring God's word, I get to start this series on Moses, uh, the life of a faith built by God. And I want you to really focus on this because Moses, let's just think about this. Moses, when you think of Moses, you think of the stories of Sunday school, right? We think, it immediately takes me to Sunday school. I think about teachers that found different ways to teach the story and to really relate to the children. I get to tell a story. I get to do what Israelites do best. Moses was an Israelite. What do Israelites do? They tell stories. They told stories that were passed on from generation to generation to generation to where one day would be written in this book that becomes our story and our book as believers. Stories that's going to change the history of the world, right? It's a redemptive story. From beginning to end, the Bible is a redemptive story. I get to start this series by telling you a story, and I'm really excited about this because from the beginning to the end of the story, we're going to kind of see what I'm talking about with Moses. When I think of Moses, and I think about the Sunday school, and I think about the different ways they, that, that people and teachers have taught and how to teach that story, I first go back to, Laura and I got to go to Indiana Wesleyan, and that's uh, where we went to college, and there was a professor there. And if some of you may know Indiana Wesleyan, know that uh, Wilbur Williams was the Bible professor. He was the Old Testament. This man was so much the Old Testament, he would dress like the Old Testament characters, right? Now, what's cool is Wilbur lived real close to the school, so he would walk from home to class to a building, to a building, to a building, dressed as Moses, dressed as a Pharisee, dressed in the times of the Old Testament or New Testament. What's fun is you would see this, you would see Moses walking across campus, right? Now in Indiana, the wind blew everywhere, right? Wind was always blowing, so I'm sure he had wig on, his hair's blowing. He liked to ride his bike, so I'm sure at times he'd be riding his bike. And can you just picture that? There goes Moses on a bike to class. Now, he really brought it to life. And uh, when I think of bringing stories to life, and I think about those Sunday school times, when I, when I tell a story in the Bible, what better way to tell it than a flannel graph? Oh! That's right. When I say flannel graph, you're supposed to say, ooh, a flannel graph. Flannel graph. <laughs> That's kind of a shout out of those of you who know or grew up on Veggie Tales. Ooh. Well, the flannel graph, the classic flannel graph, it's got three boards, right? You got the uh, blank board where you can just make it into anything. You have the room board or the inside board, right? Where people talk inside, preachers maybe, I don't know. Or you have the water board. Ooh, the water board. All right, so I'm going to set this up here. Look at that. I did that, and I didn't turn my back to you. So I'm going to build a scene from the waterboard. You know, 
what would a flannel graph kit be without a waterboard, without a story to uh, put the Noah's Ark there? It always, when I, we have this kit at home, right? Laura has used it through the years in, in homeschooling or in Sunday school. And we have the kit for Noah, too. So it just made me realize how hard was it for those teachers to tell the story of Noah? You put the boat there, and then animals, one by two by two by two by two. There's a lot of animals. Imagine how hard that must have been to set it up. Well, I'm going to attempt to do the same thing. I'm going to set up a scene for us, all right? I got it all here. Got it all set up. Oh, I got to tell you about this. This is another memory about flannel grass, and I'm sure you all can relate to this. It's one of my favorite. So I'd be a kid. They're telling the story. Maybe they're telling the story of Joseph. This is the character they use for Joseph. I thought it was funny, though, as a kid, because several weeks later, they're telling the story of Paul. And they're using the same, hey, what, what did Joseph, how did he get into Paul's story? <laughs> or maybe it's that house. Wait a minute. That's the same house. That's the same house that Joseph and Paul were in. How did that last? Or, my favorite, the tree. Hey, how did that tree last from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Just so Zacchaeus could climb up that tree. <laughs> Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yeah, you did it. You got it. All right, so I'm going to build this little scene here. Here we go. We're going to put a nice little, nice little land right there. Got to cover up the water. We'll get a nice little piece of land right here. Cute little land right there. We have to put a happy tree. So we got to have our pyramids right there. And, of course, I have to put a happy tree right there. It's Egypt, so it's hot, and there's the sun. And the reeds are going to be part of our story, right? All right, we have the princess and the mom and the daughter who's hiding behind the reeds. How do they do this, these teachers? And then we have, of course, the basket. All right, did I get everybody on there? No, I've got to put one more, just for effect. I won't put that on there. He'll come later. Pharaoh. Oh, that's one of my favorite. Oh, we got to put the baby in there, too. We tell the stories. Now, come on, as a kid, did that help you relate to the story? Absolutely. You all can remember these things, right? How to tell the stories. If I can tell you my favorite memory, my favorite memory of thinking about the flannel graph, I think about our church back when it was at Mosby Street, had a basement. That's where all the kids' rooms were. It was an old church like many of us grew up in, um, but I remember a, a, a matriarch of our, fam of our uh, church family. Uh, her name was Dorothy. Miss Dorothy was older, but Miss Dorothy had such a calling and such a love for children that she just kept teaching for years and years. Uh, she's actually the sister of uh, Miss Lois here, so that's exciting. And she passed on that teaching to Lois. She passed on that teaching to uh, her niece and uh, Norma as well. And I know that there were times that Norma were there, was there. Well, this is, how, this is how special that memory is to me and Dorothy. That was so special to her, and kids were so special to her, that she not only told the stories. Later, those were kids that would accept the Lord. Those are kids that either in that classroom or at home 
would go forward or accept the invitation on what God was calling them to and that life as a believer. And I think about my two daughters, two of my five daughters, that got to sit under Dorothy and listen to her. That was so special to her that they would be, they would be baptized in the Rappahannock, as we've seen out here. Although when we did it back then, it wasn't here with this nice little boat dock where we can walk there. This was through the grass, under the bridge, to the down underneath the bridge there on Route 1. And it was so important to Dorothy, and it was so special to Dorothy that her, her friend Linda, her loyal friend Linda, she wanted her pushing her in the wheelchair as close as she could to the water's edge, as hard as that was, so that she could watch. So you could watch those two students be baptized. One of those students is sitting right back there. One of those students has gotten a calling to youth ministry. That's how important storytelling is. That's how important it is to listen to stories. Now, kind of aside here from our whole story. Sorry, I'm getting a little off here. I thought about this, and I was, I was writing this. God just really pressed it on my heart. That that's a lost art of just listening, telling stories and listening to each other. Man, I wish I could go back to those times where my grandpas, both who loved the Lord, that I just had too much to do or I was just playing or to, to be able to sit at their feet and listen. And I encourage any of you, get together. Go have coffee. Find someone in the next generation that you want to listen to and listen to their story. It's a lot of fun. I think you may just learn something there. Back to Moses. Back to Moses. We'll start with the history lesson, a lesson that has to start with the beginning of time, okay? The beginning of mankind, because remember, it's a redemptive story from beginning to end. You know, man sinned, mankind grew numerous and evil, yet God still provided a redeemer, redemption, through an ark and a faithful man named Noah. Mankind grows in numbers again. God blesses a faithful man named Abraham, a blessing of family and descendants numerous, too numerous to count. From Abraham goes a nation, Israel, God's chosen people. Through his son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, then through Jacob, 12 sons would become a nation, Israelite. Now we have to focus on these Israelites because this is where it starts. God's chosen nation. And one of these sons, Joseph, as we know in our stories, uh, would be taken captive and sent to Egypt and become the next hero for God's people. He'd gain the trust of a Pharaoh who would give him dominion over Egypt, making the richest nation in the world even richer, rich enough to survive through any famine or drought. Meanwhile, Israel needed help in this drought, so Jacob brought his family, a family of shepherds, to Egypt to avoid starvation. This nation would grow from 70 to over 2 million people. They grew and became more powerful. As generations died away, a new king, a new king came who forgot about Joseph, didn't know about Joseph, didn't know that story and that connection that they had with the Israelites. To him, the Israelites were a threat. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies fight against us, and leave the country. 
So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked them fruitlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Hard labor today may be different than we think about hard labor in Egypt, right? You think about the hot sun. You think about how hard that must have been. They were treated ruthlessly. What does that mean? And what, what does that mean in this story? Especially coming from Egyptians that maybe at that point didn't even have a moral compass, did they? They didn't have something to go by other than multiple false gods that they followed. Badly. What, it, what does this look like, right? That's right. Were they beaten? Yeah, most likely. Could they have been killed? Yeah. Most likely. Were they given impossible tasks? Of course. You know, you're getting that picture that the lives of the Israelites were pretty miserable, right? Not that they're miserable, do you think? That they were looking for help? Do you think that they were looking for a redeemer? God, you promised us in the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant that our descendants will be numerous, too numerous to count, numerous as the stars. How is this going to be possible? So in fear of Israel, Pharaoh then orders all newborn babies, boys, to be killed by exposure. For they were left outside in the elements to die. But the midwives that they told that to, a God moment, by the way, keep that in mind, refused to. In fact, when he summoned the midwives and they didn't do it, he asked, why hadn't you obeyed him? Isn't that crazy that Pharaoh just asked them that? Pharaoh, who would put baby, babies to death, just asked them why he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything else with them. He could have killed them as well, right? He didn't. Midwives lived, lied, and that the births were happening too fast, which Pharaoh apparently believed. Everybody, every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Ah, the Nile. What do you know about the Nile? What do you think about in the Nile? I think about crocodiles, right? Think about crocodiles. You know that crocodiles kill every, or around 200 people a year, not to mention hippopotamuses. By the way, you don't want a hippopotamus for Christmas, right? <laughs> those hippopotamuses, those nice little stuffy creatures that we have as stuffed animals, no, not nice, right? How about the attacks that could happen through the venomous snakes that are there, like the black mamba and the Egyptian cobra, and mosquitoes, which are one of the most dangerous features of the Nile because of the disease-carrying abilities. Not to mention the river. It's a river, right? It's fast water. It's rocks. The Nile River was known, is known as the second on this list of rivers as the most dangerous in the world. I have a feeling, as you do, is a pretty clear picture that Pharaoh wasn't intending for these babies to live. So our villain's set up in the story, right? We have Pharaoh. A seemingly impossible situation for our nation of Israel, a situation that require great faith to overcome. Then God. Let's remember that. Then God. 
Exodus 2, 1 through 11. Now, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. and She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, he hid him. she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at the distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. She just happened to go to that spot where the basket was, right? She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out. Remember that. He went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now, before we get any deeper, I have a couple of notes to go over, a couple of details to look at with this. We go to the beginning of that scripture, and it says, Now a man of the house of Levite, Levite married a Levite woman. Okay, why would we mention that? Why a Levite? We're looking for God moments here. Why was it important to bring up that they were Levites? Levites were God's chosen tribe to take over the priesthood, to be the pastors of God's people, those that would be in charge of the tabernacles set up, and the worship leaders, those that would be given the rules of worship. You see, God was already creating a lineage of leadership in Moses' life and in his heritage. Now look at the word fine used in there, a fine child. Why would she hide the baby only after she realized it was a fine child? That might be one of the questions that I asked Jesus someday. I'm going to figure that one out. Fine comes from the Hebrew word tov or yatab, meaning to do well. Be pleasing, good, pleasant, beautiful, excellent, lovely, delightful, joyful, fruitful, precious, cheerful, kind, current, and righteous. How would you like to be described like that? In that one word, that's how God described baby Moses. Almost sounds like I'm reciting the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm sure that in every good descriptive word there in the language was used to describe that. Because we know that all good things start with a baby, right? Pharaoh's daughter knew the edict. Another God moment. She had compassion on him. She could have left the baby there. She had to know that there might be a consequence for her. Again, God's hand of protection. What about the baby's mother? How hard must that have been to give that up, to give him up? I think it's interesting that of all of the heroes of our faith that are listed in Hebrews 11, obviously Moses was listed, Abraham was listed, goes down to the heroes of the faith. Yet in all that, Moses' parents were listed there as well. As we look through scripture leading up to the story and including this story, moments, events, and facts are happening that can only be because of God. They're God moments, right? We have those in our lives. We say that in every good story, 
there's a moment when the protagonist has to rely on something greater than itself. Even if the smaller, even in this smaller chunk of Moses' huge influential story, we find moments that can only be associated with God, with God's actions, with God's calling. In those moments, we have to step back and proclaim, God did it. God did it. Man, that's, that, that's as basic as it comes, right? How big a point is that, Rich? God did it. We know that, right? We know that. It seems like that's a simple point because, of course, it was God. This is his story, right? But is that how we live our lives? Is that how the Israelites were living their lives? Did the people of Israel always recognize that it was God's hand? Did God's chosen leaders recognize it was God's hand? Did the nation of Israel recognize all that God had done to get them to that point? It seemed like a miserable point, right? A miserable existence. It seems like they were blaming God more for where they were than to look at his hand already. And they were the ones telling the stories to each other. But God's hands still be, could God's hands really still be in that point of misery? Absolutely. God pursued that nation. God allowed things to happen. God protected that nation. Let's just look at some important facts about that. You know, it was God that pursued fellowship with mankind by offering a hero in Noah. It was God that allowed a barren old couple to have children to continue the lineage of Abraham. It was God that allowed a nation to grow despite the hardships of shepherding lives. It was God that chose a family, a nation to be his chosen people, a lineage that would one day lead to the house of David and a young virgin named Mary and to a son that would change the course of human history. It was God that chose Moses to be a hero that would lead his people to a great escape. If we look closer at the story of the Israelites as it connects to our story, it was God that allowed that famine that forced Jacob to consider moving to Egypt. He feared it. It was God that spoke to Jacob in a vision telling him not to be afraid and to move his family to Egypt. It was God that found favor in Joseph to open up the door in Pharaoh's heart to say to Joseph, take it here. Take the best of the land. Give your family the best of everything, including the best land of Goshen. It was God that, this is crazy that, that Pharaoh gave them the best of the best because do you know how the, what the Egyptians felt about, the, about shepherds? They didn't like it. They didn't like shepherds because they were the high society, right? The Egyptians were the rich nation. They were the high society. They looked down on the lowly people, the dirty, the shepherds. And that was the nation of Israel. That was their prominent occupation. Pharaoh gave Israel the best possible lands to thrive in shepherding. They didn't only give them the best lands. This was the best lands for shepherds to thrive in. It was God. In our story about the midwives, we're told by Pharaoh to kill the babies if it is a boy. Yet they feared God despite possible ramifications. It was God. Rich, I mean... Why do you bring this up? Why do you keep telling us it was God? We know that. Well, it's going to continue to be God through the rest of the story of Moses. And the nation of Israel, miracle 
after miracle after miracle. It was God. We have to understand this point first and foremost about this story because when we look at this in future heroes of the Bible, what happened to several of the heroes of the Bible? They fall. They fall to pride, right? We think about Moses and the struggles that he had going into towards the promised land. David, a man after God's own heart. It can't be called much better than a man after God's own heart. He was a hero. He fell to pride. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, should know it was God, right? He fell to pride. How would any of these stories end if God had not touched those lives, had had his mark in their lives and in that story? And then how is this a direct correlation to our lives? Rich, I'm not a hero. I don't consider myself a hero. Many of us have done well in some aspect of our lives, whether it's success with friendships, success with a job, success with being good people, success with being good Christians, good church people, success with our families, success with our retirement, success with our future. Comfortable means, right? Comfortable living. I would say that in this nation, the majority of our populations have found that comfort. In many ways, we've become our own heroes. It's in this small moment that I think in our lives that we might have a small notion of, wow, look what I did. Look what I did. Look what we have done. You know, I can leave the church. I can leave the faith, and I'm still successful. Man, I hear that, and it's a little cringeworthy, I know. As believers, we hear that. I don't really believe that. But, you know, Rich, I understand my need for Jesus, for God's hand in my life, right? Then I say it as a simple reminder. God is so good in our lives, and nothing that we could ever do or achieve that is in any significance in life can be done without the hands of God first. Just remember, God did it. God did it. Well, how do we recognize that hand of God? Well, in order to recognize God's hand, we're going to have to know him, right? We have to pursue him. You, you don't know someone unless you're pursuing him. You don't know anyone. You don't, can't get to know them unless you're spending time with them. You get to know God. You get to know the things of God, yearning for the things of God. You know, Moses' childhood was passed over in silence. Moses was presumably returned to Pharaoh's daughter and raised and educated as an Egyptian. He had a good life, all that he could have wanted to grow up in. Yet, he must have known who he was. We know he looked different. He undoubtedly heard of his people, the Israelites. What would possess him to, as Scripture says, after he grew up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them. Now, as we know later in the story, Moses leaves his upbringing, his inheritance, his plush life of luxury. Something drew him out of that life. It was a desire to be with his people. Why? Well, he saw miserable 
how miserable they were. He saw those lives. Why would he want to be a part of that, right? He knew how they were treated. It doesn't make sense. He couldn't get away from who he was. He had everything at his disposal, everything and anything he could ever want. All the food, all the clothes, all the fun, all the shelter, all the education he could want. He was raised in the richest nation with all the best of the best, much like many of us may have experienced here. Yet something was missing. Scripture tells us that we were born without a moral compass. Moses was born this way as well. We have to conclude in the story that it was God that caused Moses to notice his people as he watched how the Egyptians treated his own kind. He grew up watching it. He likely knew who he was. Why was it so important to bring this part up in our story? Why was it important to bring up the fact that he went out? Do you know that Moses likely grew up in Cairo? Cairo was up to 50 miles away from Goshen. The Egyptians were in Goshen or somewhere in between. They believe he had to purposely have, have gone out to sea. He didn't need to care about them when he saw the Egyptian beating his own people, but he purposely went out. He longed for his people, God's people, God's chosen nation. He longed for something more than what he had. He yearned for the things of God. Yearning for the things of God, what does this mean? Yearning for the things of God. If I, if I were to stand here and I had all the uh, kids here and I was going to be teaching them a story, much like you would in Sunday school, and you ask them questions, they always have the same answers, right? You ask them a question, maybe you ask them, who was the king of Egypt? What did they call him? Instead of saying Pharaoh, one will yell out, Jesus. Or they might add, they might say, God. Or they might say, Bible, or pray. Those are the four answers you usually get, right, from kids. Jesus, God, Bible, pray. Now, from the mouth of babes, it might be that simple. It is that simple. The things of God, is there any more than to say, Jesus, God, Bible, pray? Jesus, our Savior, our Shepherd, our constant companion, the one who leads, walks beside us through this Christian walk, the one who gave us the perfect example to live by, even in our imperfection, the one who we as Christians strive to be like, to follow, to know, to rely on, the one who is coming soon, coming to complete that redemptive story, to take us home and to be with him for eternity. God, our creator, our heavenly father, the one who calls us out of darkness, who gives us the opportunity to be a part of his redemptive offer. The one whose name is synonymous with breathing. Yahweh. The one who can say, I am that I am. Is there anything more special than that thought? Prayer. Our lifeline, our communication, our fellowship with the Creator and Savior, our connection with each other as a body of believers and a connection with this world that so desperately needs Him.
these are the things of God? Do we yearn for those things? Are they part of our daily lives? This next question hits me to the core. What is so important in our daily lives? What is so important in our daily lives that distract us and push away those things of God? It's a simple question, but yet one of the hardest to answer. What is it that keeps us from yearning for those things of God? When we wake up in the morning, what do we think about? When we go going through our lives, whatever the task is, and there's a lot of them, we're good at putting tasks in our lives. What is it that God wants for us that day? Are we asking those questions? What are the things, why is it so important in our daily lives that we push that away? simple question that needs to be answered with simple yet foundational words. It's God, our Father. It's Jesus, our Savior, our friend. The Bible, our instructions, our history, and prayer, our fellowship. Folks, it really is as simple as that. I encourage you as you wake up that you ask God first, search my heart, God, what is it today that I might do that distracts me from you? What is it today that's going to keep me from spending that time in prayer, seeking help from my friends, seeking help from my believers, seeking you, learning about you, growing in you? What is it that's going to keep me from that time in your word, from turning those pages in a book that he gave us, in a book that's our story, his story, it's history. Can I pray for us? Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for what you're doing uh, here in this place, what you're doing across this country, Father. You are reminding hearts through your Holy Spirit that what is important in life Thank you that you're starting a fire that's burning throughout this country. The things of God, the things that are important, keeping us from the things that are distracting. Father, search our hearts every moment of every day. Search our hearts and let us know what it is that we need to let go of, what we need to do to, to just reach to you clearly and see you in everything. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.